You know, there's different opinions and preferences when it comes to celebrating Christmas. You know, the Puritans didn't like the idea of Christmas celebration. Many today agree with them that it was too Roman Catholic, and so they didn't like it because they were coming out of the Middle Ages and and coming in, of course, with the Reformation. Others today have made it so worldly and materialistic that Christians can tend to drift off into that. If you wonder where I stand, I agree with Spurgeon. He said, look, everybody's celebrating and talking about the birth of Christ. What a great time to preach on it, to tell the gospel. And it's not, he said, it's not a religious holiday. It's not commanded in scripture, but it's in the Bible. The birth of Christ is in the Bible. And so why not use an opportunity when people are listening, when visitors come to church, because they often sometimes only come twice a year. Why not preach on Jesus Christ? And so that's where we're going today. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. There's two accounts of the birth of Christ. And they tell different aspects of Christ's birth and what led up to it. One's in Matthew. That's where the Magi come. And where Joseph is spoken to by the angel and has the dream. And then in Luke. Luke is Mary's account of the events leading up to the birth of Christ. And then the birth and even after the birth. I think Luke probably interviewed Mary. She was likely alive during his lifetime. And when Luke was traveling with Paul through Israel, through the city of Jerusalem, sometime he was able to interview Mary and get her side of the story, which is a wonderful account. I think uh, you'll, you'll get much out of it this morning. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. I want to read and preach through Luke 1, 39 through 55. The divine birth announcement of our Lord. Starting in Luke 1.39. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud and the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, and remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. This really is the official birth announcement, if you will of the coming Messiah. We've had a few birth announcements in my family. The first few kids get this wonderful announcement. And maybe, maybe if you do ultrasounds, and, and we've had those where you send out the picture of the baby in, in the womb. And then as we have a few kids, they get less and less uh, announcements. Maybe eventually, poor kids, uh, more recently, don't get an official announcement. It's just on social media these days. Well, there was an announcement long before you could send things through the mail, long before you could use social media, an announcement in ancient times about the coming birth of Jesus Christ. The context of Luke is that Mary's already been told this. Really, the first announcement comes from the angel Gabriel to Mary, and he tells her what is going to happen. That's in the previous section of the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 26 of chapter 1. The angel Gabriel comes, he tells Mary that she is going to carry this child. She is going to carry the Son of God made flesh, the Messiah, the Christ. And of course, being a virgin, being very young, probably 13 or 14 years old, she's 
engaged, we could say, to be married to Joseph, but she does not understand how this could be. And if you look at the end of that section, the angel says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. This is going to happen, and she has to accept that, and she has to believe that. But at this point in the story, the only person that knows that this is going to happen, the only person is Mary herself. And then she goes to stay with her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is older. Elizabeth is the wife of Zechariah, the priest, who has already been spoken of as well in the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah has been told as well that he would have a son in his old age. He did not believe. He was struck in the mute. He could not speak until his son, John the Baptist, was born. But now let's look at just what happens between Elizabeth and Mary. How does it get out from Mary to other people, and even today, recorded in Scripture, to the whole world? And as we look at this, we're going to see four reasons Four reasons why we should rejoice in this divine birth announcement. There are many reasons in Scripture we should rejoice. God tells us over and over all the myriad of reasons. But just when we look at the divine birth of Jesus Christ, there is indeed four things this text covers. And really, Elizabeth and Mary say, prophesy, we could say, they even prophesy here, four reasons why we should rejoice. First of all, It announces the sending of a Savior. There's an announcement that a Savior is coming. We take that for granted. It's been 2,000 years. And of course, the whole world seems to be talking about Christmas and Christ's birth. And we've gotten used to it. But in those days, they were waiting for the Redeemer. They were waiting for a Savior. You'll remember after the birth, when Mary goes up to the temple and she's holding baby Jesus, that Simeon, comes and he has been waiting for the consolation of Israel before he dies. He's an old man and he's waiting. And then a prophetess comes and speaks prophecy to Mary, waiting for this Christ, this Messiah to come. So starting in verse 39, we really see the testimony here of Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, and she's testifying to Christ. It says, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah. So she's going quickly. She's traveling about two to three days from Nazareth into the hill country uh, close to Jerusalem. She's in a hurry to see Elizabeth, and that's because of the response to what the angel had said. The angel told her this was going to happen. You can imagine uh, Mary's situation. She is going to stay with kinfolk. She is going to get away for a while, ponder these things. Also, there would be all kinds of scandal. And things have to be understood and believed that she indeed is pregnant as a virgin with the Messiah. So she goes in a hurry to see Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel said that your cousin Elizabeth would bear a child. And Elizabeth is much older than Mary. Mary's a young girl. Elizabeth is older beyond what we would expect to be childbearing years. She was barren. She had not had children. And she is now pregnant with John the Baptist. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. And so now Mary hurries to go see her, to stay with her for some months. If God can make an old barren woman like Elizabeth pregnant, then he can make all kinds of miraculous things happen with Mary and the fact that she will be pregnant as a virgin. So by going to see her, Mary's going to be encouraged. You can imagine, even though Mary believed, even though she was a woman of faith, this would be stressful. This would be extremely stressful. She's engaged to be married to Joseph. She has a family in this town. The town knows her. You can imagine the rumors and gossip that would start. And so Mary needs encouragement, just like we all do in the Christian walk. And in verse 40, it says that she entered this house, the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's baby. That's John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. No words have been spoken yet. And already things are happening here. As soon as Mary walks into the house, before Elizabeth even gets to hear that Mary is pregnant, John the Baptist jumps in her womb. There's really the first public birth announcement from John the Baptist 
in the womb of Elizabeth. Elizabeth doesn't know this. You couldn't pick up the phone and call your cousin and tell her that you're now pregnant with the Messiah. Literally, the word for jumped here, skiptao in Greek. Skiptao, we get our English word skip. The baby skipped. Not a little kick like moms often experience when they're pregnant. And the baby can kick and it can be uncomfortable sometimes. No, this baby jumped. Some people joke that John the Baptist did a backflip in Elizabeth's womb. I don't think it was a backflip. I think it was a big jump. And she could really feel that. And it would be something that got her attention real quick. This is the same word that's used in Luke 6.23. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Skip for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So what does all this mean? Elizabeth might not have known if the Holy Spirit had not immediately filled her. Suddenly there's this leap, and then it says the Holy Spirit filled her. And the idea that we're supposed to get from that is the Spirit brought to her mind the truth of what this meant. At this time, it was very unusual, by the way, for God's people to have the Holy Spirit fill them. In the Old Testament, they were not promised the filling of the Spirit like we are in the New They were not promised the presence of the Spirit. You even have the Old Testament and Moses praying that God would fill all of his people with his Spirit. That does not come until Acts 2 at Pentecost. However, there were times and cases in the Old Testament where the Spirit dwelled with God's people. For example, David and even Saul for a time. And then, of course, the Spirit departed from Saul. Thankfully, in the New Testament, we cannot lose the Spirit. Once we're saved, once we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. But here, Elizabeth is following God. She's a follower of the true God. She is faithful. She is looking for her Messiah. And now the Spirit comes upon her. The Spirit comes upon her. He fills her. And now she understands the meaning of this. And even though the angel Gabriel had told her husband that baby John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now she herself is filled with the Spirit. By the way, when it comes to abortion, and people say that child is not alive, we see right here a baby having joy in the womb, an emotion, and being filled with the Spirit in the womb. We all know that, of course, a child in the womb is a real life, obviously. But here the Bible even speaks of things that are beyond our imagination. The Holy Spirit filling this child and the child having joy. The child having joy because he knows he's in the presence of the Messiah. So what do I mean by the fact that she knew what this was about? Look at verse 42. She cried out with a loud voice and said. So this this cried out with a loud voice. This is because the Spirit came upon her. She's now able to speak this truth. She knows this is God's truth. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. They did not sit down and get out the Gospel of Luke to read about what's happening here. They did not get out a systematic theology book. The Spirit gave her this information, and she's able to now speak this truth. And the very first thing Elizabeth prophesies through the Spirit is how blessed Mary is because of the baby in her womb. Not because she's just Mary. Not because she's done anything righteous or holy, although I think she was obviously a righteous person in following God. Not perfect, but one of the Old Testament saints. And here she is saying, Elizabeth is saying to Mary that she's truly blessed. Not because she earned her salvation. Not because she was born without the sin nature. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was born without sin, without a sin nature, without inherited sin. That's not true. Mary was a human woman, just like we all are humans. We are born with a sin nature. The reason the Spirit came over her when Christ is in her womb is so that the child would not have that sin nature. The Holy Spirit kept that process from happening. Jesus Christ, the only one without a sin nature. Now looking back at verse 42, look at what Elizabeth says. Not that she's blessed because she's done anything, but blessed are you because the fruit of your womb. Jesus Christ. The child within her is blessed. He is what the Old Testament called Yahweh's servant, the Messiah. And because she is blessed to carry him, she indeed is blessed. In fact, 
we still look at this, don't we? Every year, and maybe more than once a year, we consider the birth narrative of Christ. Her name is mentioned. Her faith, her belief that God could do this. Verse 43, and how has it happened to me? This is Elizabeth still. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? She's saying, you're the mother of my Lord. To most Jews, this would have been heretical. How indeed can Elizabeth say that a woman is carrying the Lord? But here's Elizabeth thinking. She's saying, who am I? How have I been so favored and honored to have the mother of my Savior to come stay in my house? What an honor that was to Elizabeth. She calls the unborn child, my Lord. The first to confess Jesus is Lord. You realize that? The first one to confess that Jesus is Lord in the timeline of Scripture. 23 times Lord is used in the birth narratives, and it's always for the God of Israel. We could say God the Father. This is the only case in the birth narratives of Luke that the Lord is used to speak of Christ because He is fully God. He is truly God. Yes, truly man and fully man, and that's what the birth narrative is focused on, but also truly God. So what is she doing here? She is expressing, Elizabeth is expressing her faith in Christ before he's even born. That's one of the reasons that we know he's the Messiah. The prophecy coming through Elizabeth because of the Holy Spirit, confessing that he is Lord. How could anyone know that unless the Lord had revealed that beforehand? So how does she know Mary's baby is actually the Lord? She tells us in verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. At the very second that Mary greeted Elizabeth, John, who's about six months old inside her as a fetus, if you want to use a scientific term, six-month-old child in the womb jumped inside her. Why did he jump? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he leap? First of all, because she had a prophet in her womb. She had a prophet in her womb. Think about it. John the Baptist's ministry was already beginning three months before he was born. He's already a prophet in the womb. He's filled with the Holy Spirit as a baby in the womb. He couldn't wait to let others know about Jesus the Savior, so he leaps for joy in the womb. John the Baptist began his ministry as a prophet from his mother's womb. This led Philip Ryken to comment, John the Baptist was the only child ever to use a womb as a pulpit. That's amazing right there. Only God could do that. So John was already going before the Lord. He was prophesied in Isaiah 40 that a forerunner would come. And he would go before the Lord and, and make the path straight. He would call out to Israel to repent of their sin and prepare for the coming of the Lord. So he's already going before the Lord here to prepare others for his coming. But secondly, the baby also, it says, leaped for joy. So not only is he a prophet and he's preparing the way and, and notifying his own mother quickly with this leap. But he leaped, it says, for joy. This little six-month-old baby in the womb, not even born yet, was overcome with joy for the Lord. That is amazing. Elizabeth was saying that a six-month-old fetus already has emotions. He can experience joy. He can experience joy. And by the way, Christ is just a few weeks old, if we want to use that term, inside the womb. So the coming of Christ into the world is something that makes a person leap for joy. John leaped for joy. Why? Not because he had to, because he wanted to. There's emotion here. There's joy here. We should leap for joy, spiritually speaking. If you want to go leap for joy after the service, you can do that outside. Or after we're eating here in the fellowship mill, we'll all look at you. But leap for joy. You should have joy in your heart for the Lord. He's come. He's come. The Savior has come. John the Baptist would later exalt the Savior and he would humble himself. He would say in John 3.29, so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. How does John have full joy now as an adult who's not got much longer to live? 
Christ has come. He has seen the Christ. You get the idea that maybe they didn't see each other for many years. And then here comes Christ down to the river. There's John. He baptizes Jesus. And he says, this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. He's going to be magnified. I'm going to decrease. John is now stepping out of the limelight. And he will soon be persecuted and be killed. So Elizabeth prophesies one more thing. One more thing that she did not previously know. She could not have known because Mary hasn't said anything yet. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary believed. And Elizabeth knew that because of the Holy Spirit. And she could say to Mary, you're blessed because you believed. You believed in the impossible. You believed in the thing that we all would expect could not even happen. And yet it will happen. And it did happen. And the angel said it would, and God said it would, and she had faith. To be blessed is to receive divine favor, special favor from God. And Mary's blessed because she's carrying the Son of God, but she's also blessed by God after the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit because she had faith. She had faith in the promise of God. And why did Mary believe? Why did Mary believe? Well, it says there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She knew. You know the song, Mary, did you know? She knew. And yet there's a song today that acts like she didn't know. She knew. The angel told her. Her cousin Elizabeth told her. The angel told Joseph, whom she would marry. They knew. Mary knew that her child was the Savior of the world. So we ought to imitate that kind of faith. Secondly, why should we rejoice? Secondly, because it announces, this announcement announces what Christ, our God, has done for us. What He has done for us. Not only is it the sending of the Savior. That knowledge is something we should be joyful about. But now it goes into what exactly the Savior is going to do for us. And this is where we get into Mary's song. Or in Latin, the Magnificat, which just means to magnify, to, to exalt, to raise up, to, we could even use the word to worship the Lord. This is Mary's song. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is her song. In verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She magnifies the Lord. She exalts the Lord, some translations say. The Greek word for magnify here, mega luno. Mega, big, luno, to, to lift up, to cause to be held in greater esteem through praise and through deeds. How do you magnify the Lord? You praise Him with your voice and through your actions and through your life. She is speaking highly, magnifying the Lord. She lifts up the Lord in instant praise. And this is not unattached from what just happened with Elizabeth. Because of what Elizabeth said, Mary breaks out into song, a prophetic song. Because of what her cousin Elizabeth has said. This is her first word as she walks in the house. Elizabeth speaks, now Mary speaks, and she does so with a prophetic song. She rejoices, it says. Rejoice, to be exceedingly joyful, to exult. Exalt is the lift up. That has an A in it. Exalt has a U in it. And that's to be glad, to be overjoyed, to sing. Mary cannot contain her joy from what has just happened. She didn't imagine that would happen. She walks in, the baby leaps, Elizabeth starts speaking. She's filled with the Spirit. Now Mary responds as well. This comes from deep within her. That's what it means to come from her soul. Also, in parallel, she uses the word spirit. Soul and spirit both can be used interchangeably in the Bible for that immaterial part of us. We're made up of our body and soul. Or sometimes the Bible uses the term spirit for soul or soul for spirit. The idea here is she's saying, all that is within me is exalting the Lord and rejoicing over this. We would say from the bottom of her heart. From her heart of hearts, from her inner being, she is 
rejoicing. And it's a model, really, for praise that all Christians should follow. It's, it's much like Hannah's song. If you go back to 1 Samuel and look at that later, Mary's song and Hannah's song is very similar. They're both praising the Lord. They're both praising the Lord for a child. And there's many parallels and similarities. So what is she rejoicing over? Why is she so joyful? Well, the fact that God is her Savior and He's sending the Son of God to redeem His elect. This is causing her to rejoice. She knows she needs a Savior. That's obvious in this whole song that she sings. She knows she needs a Savior. She's not perfect. She wasn't born without a sin nature. She's already sinned many times. She understands she needs a Savior. We shouldn't worship Mary. We shouldn't look to Mary as a God or co-redeemer. We shouldn't look to Mary as anyone other than a blessed woman who carried the Son of God in her womb. Her faithfulness is recorded here. And now we can look back and we can say, Amen. What a blessing she received. So her mind here is just not only saturated with Scripture because of all the things that she grew up with. By the way, if you look at allusions and quotes in this song of hers, you're going to find, if you look, do all the research, read commentaries, look at some of the connections, she alludes or quotes to Genesis, Deuteronomy, First and Second Samuel, Job, numerous Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. She knew her Bible. 13, 14-year-old girl, she knew her Bible. Now the Holy Spirit is coming and he's speaking through her in this song. I'll tell you why as we go down through it, because there's things that she couldn't have known that she says. But even when the Spirit speaks through her here, what is he doing? Using Scripture. Using the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God that she knew that her parents poured into her growing up, that her grandparents probably poured into her. She knew the Bible. Her mind is saturated with Scripture. And now the Holy Spirit is speaking through her. And he is using his inspired, already written word to speak through her. How much time, I wonder, did Mary's parents spend teaching her the Bible? And here it is coming out to be recorded forever in the Bible. Parents, if you ever wonder, is it worth it? To spend all this time teaching my kids the scripture, bringing them to church, letting others teach, all this time praying for them. Yes, it's always worth it. It's always worth it. We see that over and over in scripture. And one example here is just Mary and how much scripture she knew at a young age. Now she's going to give some reasons why she's exalting and rejoicing in God. The second reason I already said was that the divine birth announcement, this is overall outlined, the divine birth announcement tells us what God has done for us. Okay, that's the main point. But now under that, she's going to go into some reasons. Some reasons that she is saying what she's saying. The reasons that she is joyful, exalting the Lord. In verse 48, she says, He has looked upon the humble state of His slave. This is why I like the LSB. It says slave. Not servant. Not bond servant. Not bond slave. But slave. A slave is owned. A slave is owned. She is owned by God. She recognizes that God is my master. Doulos, slave. The LSB says, we're going to go back to that word. It may offend people, but when you understand the meaning, when you understand that we're all slaves of Christ, if we're in Christ, that is a great and beautiful word. You want to be a slave of Christ. And Christ uses that terminology. Paul uses that terminology. This is why I like the LSB. For behold... Mary says, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. So she comes before the Lord and she's humble. She comes before the Lord in a humble state here. And she says, I'm a slave. She doesn't come before the Lord and, and brag on herself. She doesn't come before the Lord and say, oh God, look at all these wonderful things I did. You know, I read my Bible every day. I pray to you every day. Why don't you just give me what I want, Lord? I'm such a good person. No. God has looked upon the humble state of his slave, she says. And then she goes on to talk about that everybody will count her as blessed. That 2,000 years later, we'll read about her in Scripture and agree because the Bible says she is blessed. God has done great things. He's the mighty one. She realizes 
that this great thing he has done for her will be talked about in all future generations. The perfect, the mighty one has done wondrous, great, magnificent things for Mary. Is she being prideful? Is she being proud here? Well, she's not exalting herself. She wanted God to be lifted up. He's blessed her. She's praising him. And she's stating exactly what he has done. She knew that she was just a small part of the story. She knew that while people would talk about her for generations, and it would be recorded in Scripture, she knew that the primary focus was on Jesus Christ, the Lord. I think she would have been really angered by how much Mary worship that there is today. I think she would have been really upset that people would go on to make statues of her and parade that down the street and worship Mary and pray to Mary. Mary's in heaven awaiting the resurrection. She's not listening to prayers to her. We are to pray to God. We are to pray through Christ to the Father by the power of the Spirit. That's not what she meant when she talks about being blessed. That people should honor her and worship her. No, she means that God blessed her and people would know about it. And we ought to respect that. We ought to not just completely throw Mary out of the Bible because people are out there worshiping her. Charles Spurgeon said, Some have done so to the grief of genuine Christians for they have apostatized from the faith and made Mary into a kind of goddess. And, he says, therefore Protestant Christians have gone to the other extreme and have not always given to her the respect which is due to her. 13, 14-year-old girl. She's been told by an angel that she's going to conceive a child as a virgin and that she's going to carry the Messiah. And she had faith and she trusted. We see prophets like Jonah having this one little task. Go preach a sermon to Nineveh. What does he do? He completely goes the other direction and says, I will not do it. Even when he's made to do it, he's still complaining at the end of the book of Jonah. We see other people in the Old Testament clearly giving basic commands by God. And they disobey and they go off and do what they want and they worship false idols. And then they whine and complain that God is bringing judgment. Here's this young woman having faith and obeying and being blessed. And she is now to be honored and respected for that. Now go over to Luke eleven twenty seven though. As much as we honor and respect Mary because of her example, just like we do Paul, just like we do uh, the apostles, We honor and and respect them because of their example of a Christ-like life. Really, though, ultimately it's about knowing Jesus and following him. 11.27, it happened that while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, we already know that Mary is blessed because God has chosen her to carry the Christ. But look what Jesus says. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary's blessed, but so much more blessed is what Jesus is getting at. So much more blessed are those who hear my word and keep it. Which Mary did. She did do that. She followed Christ. She's in the the crucifixion accounts. She's there in the crowd. She followed Jesus. She believed in Jesus as her Messiah. But don't say just because physically... You have a tie to Jesus. Don't say that's the reason to be blessed. The main reason is that you hear the word of God and keep it. We would say today, you trust in Jesus and you continue to obey him. That's ultimately the blessing. So we always need to take that into account as we're thinking about Mary. Do we magnify the Lord though like she did? Do we exalt the Lord? And just what she's already said here in her song. Do we really magnify the Lord with our lives? Mary did. You can read the whole gospel accounts and and see where she's there in the beginning. She didn't always understand things. She didn't understand why at 12, Jesus went up to the temple and they went on back home and they're wondering where he is. But she trusted. She was faithful. Thirdly, the third reason we should rejoice is that the birth announcement here tells us what he will do for all his people. What God will do for all his people. It announces what he will do for all of his people. She now goes on with her song. She now praises God for what he's going to do in Christ for the world. Specifically here, Gentiles, not Israelites. That's coming in the next point. 
Gentiles. And she says this in past tense. You're almost reading this thinking, where in the Old Testament are these things found? But often, even in the New Testament, prophets, apostles will speak in such a way, and this is a prophecy, she'll speak in such a way that it's so certain this will be done that you can say it in the past tense. God has done this. God has done that. Because she is absolutely certain it will happen. Verse 50, And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. So this is just a basic statement of what is happening here is that God's mercy is upon his people. Psalm 103.17 is where she quotes from. Mercy is God's compassion, his loving kindness, his loyal love. This mercy is only on those who fear him. You notice that at the end of the sentence? It's only on those who fear him, who fear God. To have a a profound reverence. To have a zealous love for God. To follow him with godly fear. They respect God. They reverence God. It is not to be in fear of judgment. But it's to know that you'll be accountable as one of his people. You'll be accountable for every moment of your time. Every penny that you spend everything that you do, and living in such a way that you fear Him because He is your Savior. Those who fear God truly are the ones who have faith in God. They have faith in Him. Romans 14, 12, speaking to believers, Paul says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. True fear of God happens in the believer's life as they live out their life. And and Mary is quoting this. His mercy is upon who? Who is it upon? It is upon the people who fear Him. Generation after generation. It doesn't run out. God's mercy doesn't run out. It continues on through time until Christ comes back. We know that that is when the judgment will eventually happen. We really lost the sense of the fear of God in our world today. Does anyone fear God? I saw one book published by Al Martin says, The Forgotten Fear of God. It's only Christians that fear God. And really only Christians who are seeking the Lord and who are getting taught and who are being built up that are fearing God. So many churches, organizations, Christians don't fear God. They're like what we saw in Romans 6 last time. Let us sin that grace may abound. Let us sin so that God can look good by forgiving us. The church is no place for that kind of thinking. The church is no place for a lack of the fear of God. There are a lot of things that the elders of a church have to do, mainly because they're in fear of God. Some difficult conversations, some challenging situations, some church discipline cases that are hard, that pull on the heartstrings. But God says you must do this. Christ says this is how you lead the church. And our opinions ultimately don't really matter. Because we fear God more than we fear man. And you should as well. Every Christian should fear God. So let's look at what else Mary says God will do for his people. Verse 51, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. So she goes on to talk about his power here. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers, literally the mighty ones or the powerful ones, from their thrones. And has exalted those who were humble. This is what's going to happen when Christ comes. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Yes, these are things quoted and, and alluded to from the Old Testament. God's already done some of this, but even more so when Christ comes. He is going to come and nations are going to fall and rulers are going to be toppled. And this is happening throughout history, but certainly when He returns, He is going to conquer all these nations. This is a common theme throughout the Bible. God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the proud and he does what? He gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. I mean, we have to exalt the Lord like Mary did because Christ will bring down proudful people. He will humble proudful people. Even those who are following him who are prideful for a time will be brought down. But I think here she's speaking of the unbelieving Gentiles. The nations. He's going to lift up 
Those who are humble, though. Who are those who are humble? Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are trusting in Christ. Those who admit they have no strength in themselves to save themselves, so they turn to Christ for salvation. They're humbled. That's a humbling thing, to turn to Christ, to turn from your sin, to admit you're a sinner, to admit you can't please God with anything you do. That is a humbling thing. And God's going to lift up such a person. Not as much as we might want to see in this life, but certainly when Christ returns and the kingdom comes, we are going to be lifted up if we're humble, if we're poor in spirit. You know, pride is the root sin of humanity. What was it that Eve wanted when she ate that fruit? She wanted to be like God. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to know the things that God knew. It was pride. That's what caused Satan to be thrown down from heaven. He wanted to be like God. Then he tempts Eve. And then Adam comes along and does the same thing. It's the very thing that keeps people away from turning to Christ. is pride. I've invested all my life into this false religion. Why would I turn to Christ, people say? I grew up in this religion. I would have to give all that up. Maybe lose some family members. Maybe have people be mad at me if I turn to Christ. Yes. That's what it means to humble yourself. That's what it means. Sometimes you have to throw away all that garbage because it's just sending you to hell and turn to Christ. So there are those who are mighty in their own eyes. And Mary says that God's going to humble them and that Christ's coming is going to bring all of that about. People who trust in their own riches, people who trust in their own righteousness, people who trust in their own strength and power. These are people who say, I will raise myself up in this world. I'm not going to submit to anyone. This stuff about babies coming into the world, the baby being the Son of God, even today people mock this idea of the Son of God being a child, a baby at one time. They say this idea about blood on the cross, that the Father would send His Son to die, they say that's child abuse. Why would we believe in that? It's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to the world. Paul says that. He knew from experience when he went out and preached. He says, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Why? Why? So that no man may boast. God has set it up that way. God has designed it that way. You have to give up everything to follow Christ. Everything. Be willing to give up every single thing that you are and that you own to follow Christ. And if you don't, then you fall into the category that she's talking about in this song about being brought down, being judged, being pulled down. Martin Lloyd-Jones said here, Can you not see that everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by this Son of God. That's why Peter says in his letter, he says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Christian, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You see what Peter's saying there? I wish we had more time just to go into this verse. Come to our Bible study and we will come to it on Wednesday nights. Here's how you humble yourself. You cast your cares on Him. In other words, it's prideful to think that you can handle everything on your own. That's what makes us anxious. That's what makes us worry. Oh God, I don't need you. I can handle this. And Peter says, cast your cares upon him. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He can handle it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. John 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People are proud in their knowledge. They're proud in their accomplishments. They can be proud because they go to a church that teaches doctrine. They can be proud because they go to a church that does expository preaching. You should be humble. 
I was listening to Joe Beakey talk about his family. Joe Beakey uh, teaches a lot at conferences, and he um, is a pastor and president of a Puritan seminary. And he was asked about his family. Just talk about your family. He's talking about his grandkids. And the guy who was interviewing him said, you're a proud grandpa, aren't you? And he said, no, actually, that's the wrong word. I'm a humbled dad and grandpa. And we understand that word proud father, proud grandpa is, is not often used like the proud here that we're talking about. But just to hear him say that, and that's a humble man who preaches the message of Christ. I, it encouraged me. We need to be humble before the Lord. Fourthly, the fourth reason we should rejoice is that this divine birth announcement, it tells us what he will do for Israel. We've talked about all the peoples, peoples, nations. Now Mary's going to go in specifically the Jewish people, the people that she's a part of, the the people that Christ is a part of, the Jewish people, Israel. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant. She's already talked about all peoples. Now she's focusing in on Israel. And Israel is his servant in remembrance of his mercy. Israel is God's servant. Servant, one who's committed in total obedience to another. Here, the Israel that she's mentioning here are those of the covenant nation of God that have faith in him and seek to obey him. We can use the word remnant here. Those who trust in Christ. She's not saying that God has come and brought a Messiah and you can just obey the law of Moses and be saved. She's not saying here there's two ways of salvation. You can trust in Christ or be born a Jew. No, she's saying that the people of Israel who've been looking for a Messiah have now had that promise fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. And he has given help to Israel and remembrance of his mercy. God will help them. God will help them. God will save those who trust in him, who look towards him. Remember Abraham? We went all through Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And Abraham was looking forward to the Messiah. He knew that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. God will give help to Israel through the coming Messiah. He will come to their aid as they suffer under oppressive world governments. That's what Paul means in Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. All Israel will be saved, just as it is written. Now he quotes Isaiah 59, 20. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The new covenant. He's talking about the new covenant. There was the covenant with Abraham. There was the covenant with David. And now there's a new covenant. A covenant that flows through those other covenants But the eventual outworking of those comes to this new covenant in Christ where he says, I will take away their sins. Why has God helped Israel? And and why will God continue to help his servant Israel? She says, in remembrance of his mercy. God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion. God's help. It's motivated by his loyal love. In the Old Testament, it says that God loves Israel with an everlasting love. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 11. Because of his promises, she says to Abraham, look at verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. God made a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham. And he's not going to go back on his word. He's not going to undo that covenant. He said to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you the promised land. I will bless you and make you a blessing. And through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The seed of Abraham, the descendant, singular, of Abraham would bless all the nations. That's Christ. Mary's got all this theology packed into this one little song. If we wrote a page, ten pages, a hundred pages, I don't think we could get this much theology packed in like she did. She knew her Bible. She knew what Psalm 89 said. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. It is in Christ that we see both Abrahamic and Davidic covenants being part of this unified plan and purpose of God. Yes, some people go too far. 
Some people go so far as all they're talking about is Israel, but other people go so far as to completely forget about the Old Testament and Israel and the promises that God made. And Mary says both are part of God's plan. All peoples and Israel. God is going to save them all through Christ. Not every single person. Not universalism. But when Christ returns, that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 11. When Christ returns, those who are there will trust in Him. Zechariah speaks of the same. So if God has kept His promises to Israel, He will certainly keep His promises to Gentiles. We'll get into that when we get to Romans 11. So if you're visiting today, stick around for another year or so. When we get to Romans 11, we'll settle all those questions about Israel and the Gentiles and grafting and all that stuff, okay? Verse 56, Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned home. She's returning home. It's getting closer to the time of the birth. She has some things to probably talk to her family about. And we see here from Elizabeth's prophecy, Mary's song, we learn that, that we need to humble ourselves and rejoice in God. We need to rejoice in God for, for sending a Savior. We need to rejoice in God for what He has done for us personally. There's the fact that He sent a Savior. That was the first point I looked at. But also for us personally, Mary understood that she needed a Savior. Not just for all the peoples, not just for Israel, but for herself as well. We need to rejoice in those things. We need to magnify God because of that. What is the birth of Christ about? Sure, we can have family traditions. We can have gifts. And we can even put some decorations up. That's not pagan. But ultimately, it comes down to the birth of Christ is about us rejoicing in what God has done. And Elizabeth and Mary lay that out nicely for us. Acts 19.17 says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell among them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Same word here, magnified, that Mary uses in her song. Are you magnifying the Lord with your life, with your voice, with your spiritual gifts? Are you magnifying the Lord like Elizabeth and like Mary? There are no prophets today. We're not prophesying like them, but we can magnify the Lord through our words and our actions. Let's do that as a church. Let's do that individually. Let's do that even as we have this wonderful Christmas fellowship meal afterwards. Lord, thank you for our time in your word this morning. Thank you that we can uh, look back to what happened all these millennia ago and we can uh, be reminded of what Mary knew, what Elizabeth knew, the promises that are now carried forward from the old covenant into the new covenant, that you would bring a savior, that he would save his people that He is the only Savior for the whole world, Lord. There's no other place to go. There's no other place to turn. These two women knew that. The prophets of the Old Testament knew that. The apostles knew that. Let's now magnify Him with every fiber of our being. Pray that we might do this for Your glory. Amen.